Yeehaw, hello, and howdy. Thank you for joining us on the Canon Stats Podcast. We have a very special edition today. I am joined by returning guest Michael Cayley, who you probably know from the very excellent podcast, The Double Pivot, but also from the new, brand new newsletter, Expecting Goals. Uh, welcome back, Mike. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on. This has been a long time coming and a lot of work like in the background. So it's really fun to actually like talk about it with people rather than just, uh, you know, constantly banging my head against code. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I've definitely done that too. Um, yeah, I think you're, I saw on your Discord you're talking about you know you were still kind of reusing things that you wrote several years ago, and I don't know if you have this too, but I always find when I look at something that I've like done like more than like six months in the past that I'm like I, I get this uh, burning desire to just like refactor everything. Have you been able to to hold off on that, or have you been digging into doing a lot of refactoring? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. It, it's kind of it, what I find is I find something from like six months or a year ago, and like it's new to me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, how does that's this work? Interesting again? material. And I and basically I've got to sort of sit down and figure out what I actually did. Yeah. And then once I've figured that out, like sometimes it you know it fits what I needed, and sometimes I have no idea what I was thinking. And yeah, this is this is where they say that you should always like document your code and like kind of put the explainers in there. And um, I've never done that. And I can imagine this is a kind of thing where why you might want to do that, right? No, exactly. I, I, I always think I'm documenting my code well, and then I read it and I'm like, what alien wrote this? How does this explain what it is? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know we um, when we talked last time, you were just uh, starting to have this uh, idea kind of come to fruition. And um, I know you're probably excited now that it has been birthed into the world. Um, so, yeah, why don't you kind of give us a, a little bit of an idea of like why you made this um, newsletter and what was the, the, the nexus for being able to, to do this sort of thing? Yeah. So I'd say that the, the, the big thing here is that um, I mean, well, there's two things. Um, you know, one is certainly just that I have somewhat more time in my life. My kid is older. I have been figure trying to figure out what I wanted to do with this more time for a little while. And I had a bunch of things I was tossing around, not all of them even in football analytics. But as I went through like what I had done in football analytics years ago, realized that like when I first started writing back in like the mid 2010s i was doing studies i did this thing called the shot matrix study i still get people uh sending me dms about it occasionally just and it was like the most basic pre-xg what is the likelihood of shots being scored from different zones based on a few factors you know crosses headers open play through balls that kind of stuff and that and then sort of expanding from there to look at other questions in soccer. And I had a lot of fun with it. And then once I started writing for writing freelance, that's not what they want. They, mm -hmm. they want you to talk about the game next week. They want you to talk about Messi and Ronaldo. And that's that's fun, too. And I, I, I switched over to doing that. But it was something that I liked doing. And I realized that the newsletter economy makes it possible to do something that is incredibly niche. That like, you know, you think that writing 
for the fancy stats blog at the Washington Post. You think that like 538, all of this stuff is already very, very niche within sports, but you can go so much more niche with a newsletter. So realize that that was a possibility. And then the other thing, I wrote about this in, in, in my first post at Expecting Goals. I'd be interested in what you think of this, because this is, is that it feels to me like soccer analytics has both progressed an incredible distance in the last 10 years, and then sometimes like it hasn't gotten hardly anywhere. And it's, it's, this, it's this weird mix of things. And what I've been feeling like is that we have done a lot of work on valuation mm -hmm. and uh, that like understanding what a player's you know try to figure out what a player's value is what does this player contribute in terms of points in terms of wins in terms of goals and you know i, th I think people have worked really really hard on it you got the on ball value statistics i think at the team level a lot of what people use expected goals for is this kind of question of valuation and the work that we've seen being done where we get a little insight into what's going on at the club side, like Curran Singh's presentation at the StatsBomb conference is very much focused on this player is here with the ball. This has this value. This action would have this value. This action would have this value. Like valuation has been the thing that people have been really pushing on. And I feel like some other things have been left behind a little bit or mm -hmm. in what is published. And, and I sort of categorize those as context and randomness. So, you know, a player moves from a worse team to a better team, a team that has less possession to a team that has more possession, a team that uses set plays less to a team that uses set plays more, whatever it is, how, what does that context do to their statistics? You know, game state. We've, we've got a team that has scored a lot of early goals. What does that actually mean for their numbers? What, how, what changes when a, a team plays a lot of minutes at a different game state? And how do you adjust for that? How do you normalize for that? It's sort of like, how do you compare one thing to another in soccer? How do you find a way to say, I've got this player on Genoa, and I've got this player on Alaves, and I've got this player on PSG, how do we actually compare them? Because like being in those contexts of those teams in all these different ways is very, very different. Oh, absolutely. That kind of contextual work, I think, is still missing. And then I also really want to sort of work on, you know, I think there's been a lot of work done on especially expected goals and variation. You know, how, how many minutes, how many shots do you need for a player or a team to start believing that their under or over performance of XG is something quote unquote real, is something sustainable? And that work is there. And I think that that work provides a model for how to look at a whole lot of other things. Like how do passes stabilize? Do passes into the penalty area stabilize? Do tackles stabilize? Aerial percentage, all of these things are also the same analysis should be applied to those that's been applied to expected goals. And so those are, you know, I, I've, I've sort of listed off a few very specific things, but those broad categories, understanding better the context and the comparability of soccer statistics and understanding better the randomness that goes into soccer statistics and then the, the future projectability of soccer statistics are the, thing, the things I really want to try to dig into in this newsletter. I'd probably go off in a million different directions, but... Basically, I just feel, 
having been doing this for a while, that there is stuff that I kind of thought we would have answered by now, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, and, and maybe somebody has, I don't, I, I think in some ways this is going to be learning for me. I hopefully find out stuff I didn't know, find out work I didn't know. Surely there's stuff that's happened inside the web <laughs> that we just don't know about because they own it. But at least for me out in the world, I think this stuff hasn't been answered and I'd really like to have some time to, to dig into it. And so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting too. And I think that, I mean, some of these things that you already kind of talked about, it's like, I, I have had those same thoughts and I've done some of these types of things, but I think that there's been kind of like a, a shift, especially because, you know, you think about when you first started, like that was kind of like the the heyday of, you know, the the blogging, right? And everybody yeah. was writing things. And um, I think we both, you know, started, you know, with baseball too, in the probably the, the early mid 2000s. And it was a similar kind of a thing where everybody was, you know, posting and doing those kinds of things. Um, and then I think it kind of like petered out a little bit where there was less of that. Um, I think you also saw the first wave of people doing work kind of all got hired up by clubs too. So uh, there was a lot of things that they were doing and probably did continue to do. But they become, you know, behind the, you know, the the wall of IP that's owned by the club too. So I think it is kind of interesting to try to get some of these things back out into uh, the public realm um, for more people to be able to kind of build upon and improve upon and be able to do. So I think that is a, a really great idea because I, I find myself in the same kind of thing, right? I, know, I think you said this about in your introductory post too, where it's like, you know, the double pivot. Like I'm sure you you love doing that, but it it does kind of stop you from taking a bigger picture because you are caught up in the the minutia of like what's going on this week or you know maybe you take like a a month's view of a team or you know whatever kind of thing is going on but not really necessarily have the time to be able to do it so i think it's yeah very cool to be able to to kind of look at these things yeah exactly i think that you know the sort of joke about analytics where we're really taking you know looking back and saying look it's fine it's been a few weeks. Those few weeks were bad. Whatever. It's fine. The team's going to score the goals that, that, that they're they're creating the chances for. And and But that's not like the long view. That's just the slightly longer view than what is being done on, you know, you know all, all the more famous weekly podcasts. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, just to, to take it to Arsenal, like, I think that's a, a really good kind of illustration of like what's I don't know if it's like a problem per se, but it's like a, what happens, right? So Arsenal are going through a, a massive cold slump and um, it's, it's hard to like really kind of put your finger on, well, what is the problem or like, what can you do to fix it? Or like, is there even something here to fix? And I think you had a, a good point, like where a lot of times we do do the hand waving thing of like, well, it is just randomness. And like, it's probably not all randomness. Like there is probably things that we don't know about. And like, we just don't have a, a good kind of explanation for these things. And like, I don't know, like even trying to look into it, sometimes it is just, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're not putting more shots on target, but it's like, well, how random is getting shots on target? Like, like, is this something real, like, and doing those kinds of things. So it'd be nice to be able to really kind of put more uh, precision when we start saying, oh, it's a too small of a sample, or like, when will we start to be able to say this is more of a problem versus uh, just waving it away, right? Exactly, exactly. I think that sort of two things with that. One is that I think exactly as you're saying, and I've had this experience doing the podcast, I've had this experience just posting where 
you get to a claim where I want to make a claim like this is mostly randomness. And like with XG a little bit, XG and goals, like there's a fair amount out there that I can feel reasonably good about, like how much how much of it is sustainable. But all these other things, like, you know, I, I, st I start to wave my hands a little bit. Like we know this is generally something that hasn't been and like that that comes up a lot and i think that i mean i, I found myself doing that with sub effects and that was one of the reasons this was one of the first studies i did because i would we'd be doing a player profile like well looking at about like 70 percent of his start minutes as a starter and 30 as a sub that's quite high so i'd say and so adjust it down a little bit well that's not a, that's not <laughs> an answer and like it's it's not wrong but i i i, I would want to have more precision there so I, these things always keep cre creating for me uh new questions and, and hopefully that, that'll sort of keep happening the the other thing that i'm really interested in and this is in some ways um this is in some ways something that i think this newsletter is only going to touch on to a certain degree i think that there's more than enough out there in soccer analytics that like can be is really amenable to study and so I'm going to focus on the stuff that is very amenable to study like that. That's you know, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. But one thing I'm really interested in is the way in which when especially when you work inside a club, there are questions that you as the analytics person on a certain level simply can't answer. That, you know, I, I was sort of talking about this on our on a recent podcast with Mike about uh, Antonio Nusa that Spurs are are targeting. And he's got like, you know, 800, 900 minutes. And they're very impressive. And like, there's a lot that would, there's a ton of work that you could do to say, okay, wait, a sample of 900 minutes on these different statistics in this league context, how much does that tell you? And I think you could quantify that. But ultimately, I find it exceptionally unlikely that what you would end up with is anything other than here are some very wide error bars because all yeah. we've got is 900 minutes and possibly also here are some very wide error bars because league translations have error bars. I think that's, that's a really open question. And so if you are working inside a club, part of what you are doing is providing work that gives some, gives those error bars, gives some baselines that then need to be answered by people doing other kinds of work. And, and a lot of important questions in soccer, you know, if Arsenal had had a finishing slump for a hundred games, we'd get a lot more information about what caused that finishing slump. Yeah. You know, if Arsenal have a finish slump for four games, even if there is something very real there, which is quite possible, 360 minutes, like, what are you going to find? And, and and those questions are just objectively difficult to answer with analytics. And that's, a, I, it's kind of funny if we're talking about this, like that that's not really what my studies are going to be about. My studies are going to be about finding those baselines, finding those error bars. But I, I want to always make sure I'm acknowledging that there are just the way that data works. There are questions that we're not going to be answering. Yeah, and I think it's it's also interesting to kind of think about. It. It's like so I think we intuitively know that there are error bars, but right now like like you were saying like we just manually kind of throw them in there and we just have this kind of like gut feeling almost of like what the error bars should be. Like I bet if you do go look at, you know, Arsenal's and you were to kind of like put it in there like, you know, a null hypothesis like 
I would almost certainly say that we wouldn't we would reject we wouldn't be able to reject the null hypothesis that it was uh, you know Arsenal are a bad finishing team, right? Like I don't yep. think that there was certainly enough of a sample to be able to say that with definitive proof. But do we know how long we need to go to be able to do it? Like is the the Graham Potter like example of like his teams always underperforming like is that a big enough sample like two seasons of him like is there something specific about that like i think that's kind of an interesting thing too to kind of be able to put more of a i guess an actual like uh baseline on than just our gut that yeah there is probably something there like maybe it is something about the the quality of the team that he's trying to implement these tactics with or maybe it's the the cutbacks that he seems to favor and you know more block shots kind of coming through maybe that is kind of what explains it or it's like you know the the Sean Dyche um, example of Burnley right like I think one of the things that's kind of floated out is like they're they were able to do it by blocking more shots well it's like well how like how random and like how repeatable is blocking shots as a a skill to be able to do like is this something that is a repeatable and it just like these things are like we have a feeling we have a, a gut about it but it's really hard to say more than like eh, yeah you just kind of adjust it right <laughs> yep <laughs> but you know yeah, uh, that'll yeah. be really nice to to be able to do i think one of the things that i've i've heard and or i get questions about is like how much and for how long do you think we'll be able to still have questions that we'll be able to wring regular kind of like event data out of to be able to to get insights from before you have to go into the the bigger um more uh data intensive like tracking style stuff yeah i i think that to to a great degree my newsletter is my answer to that which is mm -hmm. i think there's a lot and i think that if we focus on let's find war for soccer let's find wins above replacement maybe the par points above replacement i don't know tar titles above replacement you could you could go a lot of different places and a lot of words end in r like that stuff on a certain level especially with quantifying defending at the player level man i think that like it gets really really hard even the stuff that i see from from that from these these ball on ball value metrics I have a lot of questions about the amount of variance that that seems to exist in them year to year and what they're telling us. And and you know, I don't know. If someone needs to you know put more out there. We'll find out what happens. And so I think a lot of those those really cutting edge valuation questions we are really getting to the edge or beyond it with what we can do with the event data already mm -hmm. even now xg on ball value the, the people that are producing these are producing them using some amount of player positioning information as well as event data and so but i think that there is a lot else a lot of other things and in particular one of the things that i'm interested in with this study is is telling us more things about our statistics. Because I think that one thing that's going on in soccer is that we don't understand our statistics as well as we could. Like, what does it mean that someone is at three and a half shots per 90 and 0.08 expected goals per shot? What would it mean differently if they were at 2.5 shots per 90 and 0.12 expected goals per shot? They'd have a similar amount of XG per 90, mm -hmm. but which of those is telling us something more about the player? And 
all of and, and you know what what is the context in which those are created all of these things all of these are i think questions about our existing statistics which because they are about statistics we can answer them with the event data to greater or lesser extents we'll find out what samples we can produce we'll find out what study designs we can produce but i think that we don't understand enough about our own data we don't understand enough about pass volume passes in different locations tackles like what are these things not what are these things telling us about the value of a player? Valuating tackles probably needs some event data. Understanding what tackles mean in, in the context of a, of a team, in, 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 a, in, a, in a player's progression over their career, you know, understanding how sustainable these numbers are. Those are questions I think we can answer. And I believe that answering those questions will tell us more about the game as well. But in some ways, I want to focus a little bit on understanding the statistics themselves. And that's where I think there's a lot of work still to be done with our event data. Yeah. And I was just even just like kind of like riffing more on tackles, like right now, like tackles are still feel kind of like in the, the olden days of like, um, you know, all shots are kind of like treated the same because we just treat them that way. Like, but I think we do know that like where you, you know, go into a challenge, um, your expectation for how often you need to win it or want to win it is vastly different, right? Like if you're challenging yeah. a player pressing, like you, you can be more aggressive and be dribbled past there. And it's not quite as bad. It's not nearly as bad as like, you know, being like in the middle of, you know, the, your defensive third and you're a midfielder and like you get dribbled past there. Like that is a significantly different type of tackle to go into with different kind of expectations for how often you should win it before you actually go and try and make a challenge on those kinds of things. And I think that there's those kinds of things that are absolutely um, you know, uh, very uncovered, um, or at least, um, uh, like maybe team or people are doing it. Um, I know I've started to like, start to like, uh, do a very, very rudimentary type of thing. Like that basically is just like full, like, uh, distance from goal distance to like the sideline, very simple, like that kind of thing, just to like, and there is a pretty big spread in like how often like a person should be expected to win a tackle in those kinds of things. And I think these are very simple things that are just uh, not talked about, but we just are still kind of treat all tackles the same right now. Exactly. I mean, you, you look at like, you know, if you look at center back numbers, us, us, center backs are going to have much, much higher percentage of their tackles won. They're going to have higher percentage of take-ons against that are unsuccessful, which are two slightly different things. A tackle doesn't necessarily need to be a take-on. If someone doesn't try to beat you, it's not a take-on. You, you just go and win the ball or if they try to. And so those those are separable things. And I think, I think that creating models like this, we can create models of past success in the same way we can create models of tackle success. We can create models of aerial success. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have player heights. They're, they're not perfect, but we have them. And like, how do player heights impact aerial success? How does that differ in different locations? Are there players that outperform those percentages? Like, those are all pretty straightforward things to produce, which don't necessarily tell us who's better. Maybe, you know someone who makes a higher percentage of tackles is not making the right number of tackles. Maybe, you know, 
Yeah, maybe they're being too conservative, right? They're only doing tackles where they like are like 80% to win and they are, you know, doing these ones that could have been very valuable, but they were a 60% chance and they just uh, back off too much and give space to a player to be able to do an action. Like these are things that we're not going to necessarily know in the event data, but you might be able to kind of uh, tease them out with a player's profile, right? Right. And, And you'll be able to then formulate that question better. I think that if you have a player who you can really say because you've done the work of this is their sort of expected tackle percentage based on the underlying numbers, then you can say, okay, well, that tackle that tackle percentage is much better than their expected tackle percentage. What is that telling us? And that opens up a, n- a number of questions. That doesn't answer the question of how good that player is at tackling, but it, it allows us to ask much better questions about that player's statistics and contribution and understand them tactically and all these sorts of things. And so, like, understanding the statistics better doesn't necessarily mean, certainly doesn't mean solving football. And yeah. doesn't even mean answering those questions necessarily. But I think it really does mean asking those questions better. Yeah, and I think it's, it's like none of these things are things that are like new. I think that like if you talk to somebody, like everybody kind of has, it's like this is kind of like how I go about when I talk to people about like XG. It's like everybody has like an intuitive like XG model because we've watched yeah. enough and like we know what a good chance is versus we know what like, you know, a guy just taking a shot from, you know, 30 yards out like looks like. Those are different things. Like we just know that because we've seen enough of the game. But, you know, what XG is kind of putting on is like a, a more formalized estimate of what these things are based on, you know, past uh, shots that, you know, share the same characteristics. And like when I tell people like, kind of like that way, I think people start to understand a little bit better. It's similar to like passing, right? Like we all know that, you know, if you pass sideways, that's a really easy pass to complete. And like so pass completion by itself is helpful. It's better than just like number of passes or like something like that. Um, but then it's like, well, now we can add like further context. So it's like, well, how much of these are forward or like how much of these are into certain you know zones and being able to kind of like, cause I think this is something that you'll probably touch on too, right? It's like more of like an expected passing model and like being able to see these kinds of things. Um, like, as you kind of look at like a, a player, like Kevin De Bruyne, who's got like a low pass completion percentage of a player of his quality. Right. But yeah. that is kind of, uh, hidden by, the guy tries a lot of hard passes and he completes them at a crazy rate for how hard the passes are. But we know that because we've seen him, but you know, so you can kind of intuitively know these things, but if you try to put more formalized thing, I think that would uh, help to say like, well, how much better is he than some of these other players that do something like, like how much better is, you know, De Bruyne versus, you know, Bruno Fernandes who does a similar kind of a uh, home run style, you know, passing. Right. Exactly, exactly, and like and then with you know De Bruyne and, uh, and and Bruno, how does how do their teammates affect it? How does the team context affect it? All, all of these questions, I think, are are really interesting. I I want to talk a little bit about the the, the first study that I did, just sort of because I've mm-hmm. been sort of like tossing studies out, but that I haven't done, and talk about the thing that I did do because I, I, as I said, you know, a lot of what I find myself talking about when I talk about players, I talk about like you know. Okay, here's here's some sub effects. Um, there, there's some sub effects in here. Well, what yeah. does that mean? And I mean, what it means is that attackers score a bunch more goals when they are subs than when they are starters. They score at a higher rate. And to be clear, that's a fact about the statistics. I have these statistical records over 
some like 60 league seasons and I can compare players numbers as starters and attackers and I can see this like 40 plus percent increase in goal scoring I can see a you know 20 percent increase in shot attempts I can see a 25 percent increase in in, in in successful dribbles and that allows us to, to and I want to put together the, these coefficients that you can use to apply to, um, to, to a player's numbers if you know the percentage of, of minutes they've played as a starter or as a sub. And that allows you to adjust these. And But one thing that I found as I was working on this, and the, a thing I wanted to, to leave open, is that on a certain intuitive level, the sub-effect exists because you know, subs are fresh. Mm-hmm. The sub effect exists because you're bringing somebody into the game who hasn't been running around for an hour. And on top yep. of that, they've been watching the game for an hour. So they have some sense of like, oh, if I were in that situation, I could do this. They have that they, they and the manager can, can work out those plans as well. And some effect of the sub, some, some percentage of the sub effect is surely that basic thing. But one thing I'm really interested in, whether that's, all of it and this was like the craziest thing that i found i'm, I'm not the first person to find this I, I but i didn't know other people had found it which is that 56 percent of goals are scored in the second half and 44 percent of goals are scored in the first half and there's a particularly big spike in second half stoppage time and and a smaller spike in the five minutes leading up to second half stoppage time. But, you know, it's just a huge, huge percentage. There's actually a, a, one thing I th- found was fun. I'm doing a little, little blog post about this is that this guy, Daniel Finkelstein did this column called the think tank for the times. So there's a whole archive of stuff that he did. And sadly the archive doesn't include his graphs anymore, just his text, but he did this back in 2009 and enjoyably he cites work by a group of academics, one of whom is Dr. Ian Graham. So, uh, you know, that guy went on to do some things. But they found that in the years before 2009, so all of my data is 2010 and and, and, and past, and all of his data, because he did it in 2009, is like years before 2009, that he found exactly the same thing, consistent across different leagues. 56% of goals in the second half, 44% of goals in the first half. And yeah, it's interesting, right, that it hasn't changed. Like, so there's been um, still, like, all of these data people and all of these things that have come in, but the game still hasn't really changed. Yeah, and so is there something inherent there, or is it something changeable? I, I, I mean, you know, that that's a sort of larger question that the studies point to, rather than something the studies can answer. But I'm really interested in the question of whether, to what degree, are teams just not trying hard enough to score in the first half? And to what degree... Is it just much easier to come out in the second half? Are they conserving their energy because of this? What what, what is causing this? I I am really open to a lot of different answers. Yeah, and I know there's looking here too about your thing. So it's the even inside of the second or inside of the second half, right? The first ten minutes are different than kind of the the period from you know that fifty five to about eighty, right? 
or yep. that 85. So it's like that first 10 minutes, like you'll often see like a, a team come out with that extra burst of energy or whatever, like, you know, they, they got yelled at by their manager and like, you know, they need to, to go do something. But it's like- I love the burst of goals at 10 minutes. They really do keep it tight for 10 minutes and then have a go. Like, yeah. Yeah, the, the weird things that kind of happen, it's like, and like the the very first couple minutes of a game, like, right, that like you just do not see teams come out super aggressive, like usually within like the first five minutes of a game. Yep. Um, it's not until really, like yeah, really about don't. that 10th minute where it's about normal. And then it's a slow increase as time kind of goes past, right? It's a, a weird yep. kind of like, why is that? Like, there isn't like a, a logical reason why like there should be like, I mean, you know, maybe the first minute because like, yeah, you, you're, you're just setting up. But even then, like you're starting at the halfway point, like mm-hmm. it's not that much different. Like you could kick it long and like just get it down there. Right. Yep. Yep. I so. mean, exactly. It, it, like, yes, scoring goals in the f- very first minute should be slower. Yeah. But after that, like, it doesn't take that long to move the ball. And it really doesn't pick up until like, you know, doesn't really reach a normal level until five minutes. Mm hmm. Yeah, because I mean, like, if you like really think about it, it's like, like after like the first two minutes, like even that might be like too much. Like it takes like thirty seconds to kind of like really for a game to kind of like settle into a pattern that you would recognize and not look out of place. Probably for you know if you were to you know fast forward thirty minutes, like it's yep. not that different after thirty seconds, right? Yeah. So there's no yep. real like reason outside of teams. I think just being a little bit more conservative. Um, not wanting to, you know, give up things, but it's like, but why is that? Like, is there, what is the question? Is there, are are there a question? Are there teams that have handled this differently? Are there teams, if we go back through all of, all of these numbers and all of these seasons that have done more attacking and how would you measure that in those first couple of minutes and what were the effects of it? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that I think is more of a, a question of like, why is it done this way is the the timing of substitutes too, right? So yep. we had a, a change recently um, from three subs to five subs over, you know, three or four periods. Um, and that has certainly changed things, but it still feels like we're quite a ways away from what I would think is a, an optimum pattern for trying to get the most out of this. Um I think that there's, I still think about so like some of the best teams and, you know, you have a talent advantage and you have players on your bench that um, where the, the drop off between like, say a starter and your backup, like is probably like, there is probably a difference, but the difference between a fresh guy who is a high quality guy on your a good team, like it probably balances a lot more towards like we should get him on sooner and like mm-hmm. make things work. And it's really interesting that there hasn't really been that much of a change. And I was I was looking at this the other day, like in the relation to to Arsenal and like how much you know minutes they are, like where the subs are um, that happen inside of the league. And it is a, a very tight band of where teams actually make their substitutes. So uh, West Ham is the the slowest to make substitutes and they have their first sub usually, um, you know, in the, the late 60s and Brighton are the most aggressive and they're in the early 50s. I didn't take out anything for like injury substitutes so that there is yep. going to be some of that that happens, but it's like, that's still a pretty tight band of where teams are doing it. Um, and it gets even tighter as you go further and further down where like teams just are not very aggressive in using their subs. Is that something that I think it'd be interesting to kind of use the substitute effect 
and really kind of see like who is trying to take the most advantage of their team or being able to do things with their team. Yeah, and and one thing that I found that I found was just was just fascinating to me is that uh, I was looked up some Arsenal numbers for, for going on the Arsenal podcast, and in the 2018-19 season, so this is before the uh, before the the implementation of the five sub rule. Mm-hmm. The team that used the most minutes from substitutes was Arsenal by a fairly good margin. They were the only team that you that where substitutes played over 8% of their minutes. And it was actually eight and a half percent in the 2019, 20 season. Uh, Arsenal were one of the top teams for using substitutes. Now that 18, 19, 20 is a little bit skewed. That's your pandemic season. So they had more subs in the second half of the season. Um, and then since then, what has happened is that Arsenal have fallen down the rate, the ranking list of subs, but not because they use fewer subs, but because everyone else, most teams use more now. I have Arsenal around uh, nine, is is seven to nine percent um, of their minutes from subs the last couple of seasons, which now is toward the bottom mm-hmm. rather than toward the top, and. I, I mean, I don't know. It it, it it does offer the suggestion to me that there has been a, a that they haven't adjusted. Um, the other funny thing, though, is that the other team that really did the same thing that was near the top and now is near the bottom, but even more extreme is Man City. Man City also have not changed. Average team has changed. The average number of subs is now up over over nine percent this season the average you know teams now are making use of the five subs but some of these teams in particular man city and arsenal seem to not be using that uh to the degree that they did back when it was three i don't have you know i have i have some guesses Mm -hmm. about why whether this is a good idea or not a good idea i tend to guess that it isn't but you know part of the point of this newsletter is not to sort of put this data out here and say probably a bad idea but rather to try to come up with a way to to, to put together a study design that tells you whether what 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 a team is getting out of doing things this way or not yeah and i think this kind of goes to something that we were talking about a little bit before we recorded and you know both of us coming from kind of baseball and baseball is something where you've seen a pretty drastic shift, um, especially over the last probably like five to seven years about the way teams use their bench. Um, and it's more about how like they've like almost constructed the rosters of their teams. Um, so yep. you'll see a lot more of platoons. Um, so if you're not familiar with baseball, platoons typically are, you know, outfield players that, um, you know, you'll have one right-handed player, one left-handed player, and they kind of alternate depending on the starting pitcher that's um, playing that day. Um, but I think the biggest change and probably the one that has been um, like most transformational for the sport of baseball is the pitching. Um, they It was so transformational that they've had to like change pitching rules about how things are done. Because for the longest time, like your, your starting pitcher, you kind of expected them to go at least six innings um, into seven or eight was not that uncommon. Um, and then we kind of came to this idea of realizing that uh, throwing the ball harder is better. Um, throwing the <laughs> ball harder, you can throw the ball harder if you go maximum effort more often. And then there was also the, you know, kind of the realization that the more times a hitter faces a batter, 
the more effective the batter becomes and the less effective a pitcher comes. So all of these things combined saw pitchers come out for more maximum effort and shorter stints. So you saw more pitchers being used, being able to do that. And I can't like help but kind of think that there's a, a connection, especially into teams that try to utilize a very high intensity style of game um, where like you want your guy running his socks off pressing doing all of these things he's closing down and like if you just give a guy an instruction like give me 50 of your hardest intensity minutes and then we got another guy on the bench who's going to come in right for you and he's going to get 40 minutes of high intensity right behind you like that might be something that you can build your squad to be able to take advantage of um i could imagine someone like a, a team that maybe um, you know, is in the the tier of not like Manchester City level of good, but, you know, somewhere in like a, an Arsenal or a Tottenham level where it's like, this is a, something that we could have two players combined to give us the output of, you know, a one world-class player that we may be not able to afford to be able to get these kinds of things. And it just it feels like these questions are out there and just not being maybe answered or just uh, maybe not being maximized yet. Yeah, one thing that that reminds me of is that one thing that I found is, again, a very consistent thing across uh, time is that substitutes are used much more often when teams are behind than when they are ahead. And so there are, you know, the percentage of minutes played by subs is much higher for teams that are that are losing than for teams that are winning. And the question that that raises to me, I mean, what, what it shows us is that managers for the most part use their subs to try to score more goals. This is why uh, uh, sub minutes are very much concentrated among players in attacking positions. All of that, 100% true. But... I definitely wonder if that is a good idea, in particular if teams that are winning have a tendency to think this is working, let's not change it, rather than let's let this guy run for 30 minutes. And there was a there was a study by Kevin Minkus at American Soccer Analysis years ago that, that suggested that making defensive substitutions when you are winning that is bringing on players in more defensive roles than more attacking roles appeared in the, the MLS data that he had at that time to, to, to lead to fewer goals conceded. And, and, and that so making subs at a positive game state with an eye toward just conceding fewer goals might be a good idea. And I, I, I think I need, I need to, you know, that that's very much a, you know, there's several steps down the line mm -hmm. to, to make that claim, but, it certainly is striking to me that there is such a significant deviation in substitute minutes based on game state. And I, I am, that's one, that that's probably the one, if there's one finding where I found something, I'm like, I am skeptical. This is the right way to play things. It is that, it, that, that, it, that looks to me very much like making a conclusion based on the score line rather than making a conclusion based on a more objective question of which players would be better right now. 
Yeah, and it, it almost kind of goes into like a, a manager won't get blamed if they, you know, leave on a player, right? The If yep. you make a change, you have now moved that spotlight onto you and your decision that you made. Um, but if you leave a player on and something happens, like you're less likely to be, it's more likely that player is going to be blamed rather than the manager who made the choice to say, leave him on. Um, I think that is something that, you know, might be, I don't know. No, it's, it's speculation, yep. but it is something that's interesting. Is like, why is that being made? And, you know, maybe this is something that needs to be overcome to end up in a more optimal situation. Yeah. And no, I mean, I, I think we, we've, we've seen this happen in, in other sports already. I mean, you, you've been watching some of the NFL playoffs and like everyone goes for it on fourth down. Now it is, once you make and like fourth these things, you know, you know, American football much much easier to put together win probability stats that show these things. It's just mm-hmm. a it's a, it's a less dynamic sport. There are yeah, very, very discreet, right? discreet choices exactly. You can really identify and crystallize discrete choices. That's much harder to do in soccer. But something like Minkus' study design, if we, if if I can I can replicate it, would be really really interesting to look at whether using subs earlier with the lead has effects. I mean, obviously there'd be, there, there, there's always confounders here, but that, that to me would be indicative, especially because I have you know, such a strong hypothesis of what's going on. Yeah, and I think it'd be interesting to kind of think through like, well, do you change your tactics? Is it a like for like kind of thing? Do you have like a defensive specialist that you bring on? Um, Mm -hmm. And then that even kind of goes into like, well, how do you build your bench um, and your squad to do you are you going to see more of these kind of specialist players that you can bring on to things and um, I, I know one of the things that you're seeing some of the best teams like really lean into generating a lot of attack from set plays um like i know and then you know one of the players that i've always thought that would fit perfectly into this is like a a james ward prowse like he is just so good at delivery and so good at you know these kinds of uh free kick uh, dead ball situations it's like would he be a perfect guy, you know, especially as he gets older and he can't run around as much, like you get to the the 80th minute and like you save your spot for him and like you just bring him on and you hope that you get one or two set ball situations and you can try to take the magic from him. Like, is there these kinds of specialist players that um, are kind of undervalued now and might be, you know, a, a guy that you have on your bench um, and now that you have five subs that you can, you know, be able to take advantage of these kinds of things. Yeah. Like if you have this, this you have a longer bench, you have five subs you have a sub that is for particular situations. And for the most part, what managers seem to do is they just like put subs very position. Up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, know, you, you do need some amount of coverage. Like a player can get injured. A player can get a red card. Like you can, you can have stuff you need to throw on. But I think that thinking through those questions in a, in a more structured way and, and opening up questions of, well, this bench has a couple guys that can help me score a goal, but what am I going to do if I'm up two goals? And, you know, the normal answer is, well, you keep it going because it's working. <laughs> yeah. But that that should be a decision point, I think. 
right? And because and we know that teams' tactics change when you know they're they're down or you know when yep. they're up. Um, you know the way that teams go about playing, right? If you're up two goals, you are less likely to take some of these risks. You're less likely to have players pushing forward that you would normally. You play for you know the, the classic. You play on the break, like you look to see if you can you know have numbers back, and then you try to you know score with three players. You know making a a, a fast break, trying to to go quickly through a team. Um, but it's so it's like we know that these things happen so it's like is it makes sense to um always you know uh, just keep it going and just you know change your tactics with the players that you have on the field um i think the other thing too that you, you hit on is like how often or when like is there a, a point where like it makes sense to use that last sub and not save it for a, a what if situation like yeah do we have a, a, an, a an inclination of like how often is there a late red card or a, a late injury that is doing it and like are we making the are we being too risk averse in saving a substitute for like the the injury time for these kinds of things and so yeah, what are the chances of that happening and what are the co- what would be the costs of it like if you if you're if you're effectively playing with 10 for three minutes yeah. how often does that happen and what and is it worth it, it right yeah 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 so there's i think there is lots of this is just you know I, we start talking about it and i like have all these ideas that start popping into my head of things that i would love to to look at more and this is why i always like to talk to you yeah <laughs> it's just perfect to, to to bring these kinds of things up and it's like I no, this, just... this has been super fun just I mean, I, i've had a bunch of ideas for things i need to i need to look at and this is the fun thing with this newsletter i feel like i'm not anywhere close to running out of things I've got to take a look at. So hope I'll be able to do it more. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm very excited. Um, and if you guys haven't had a chance, the, the first one is up on substitute effects. Um, it's a, a really good one. I plan on borrowing uh, lots of key learnings from here to integrate into the, the things that I do. Um, yeah, so I, I look forward to more of what you have to come and um, hopefully I can, you know, help you, uh, you know, get more ideas going forward and yeah, I'll see if I can build on them too. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let, let's keep talking. If you have anything like, you know, shoot me a DM and stuff too. And, uh, you know, folks listening, yeah, it's expectinggoals.com. Love yeah. to um, hear what you think. Yeah, I'm yeah. on Twitter at MC of A I, and I'm around. Yeah, you yeah, plug all your things, right? So the, oh. the Double Pivot podcast, uh, anything else you got going on? Yeah, don't, don't don't forget the Double Pivot podcast as well. That's that's got a Patreon. If, if you are subscribing to that, you I'm 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 cross posting these. So if you are a a, a, a Patreon subscriber to Double Pivot, you could you can possibly um you could you could get it through that platform rather than through Substack and expecting goals. Lots of different options out there for you. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's what I've got going on. And uh, Scott, thank you so much for having me on. It's been super fun as always. Absolutely. Yep. Always worth it. Thank you so much. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you on the next one. And yeah, give us all your feedback and we'll get you going again. Thank you guys. Thank you.